So, we're continuing the never-ending series called Eight Essential Elements of the Biblical Christian Gospel. This is the 124th lesson in that series, and we are in Element 7 PG, and and Element 7 is the first five steps of entering Christ's kingdom, and we are focusing on the third step, baptized in the Holy Spirit. And so we're simultaneously doing another series that they kind of overlap each other, and that series is called Baptized in the Holy Spirit 2017 version. We have a short 2013 or 14 version that's under messages on baptism in the podcast. That is what you'd want to listen to if you're just getting started and you want to get baptized in the Holy Spirit. We've had several people get baptized in the Holy Spirit lately, and that's always a very, very positive experience at the beginning of your Christian life. So... Um, I've had three ladies get baptized in the Holy Spirit in the last week or two. So, uh, on the Baptized in the Holy Spirit series, this longer version, this is the 31st message in that, as far as, if I'm counting them correctly, someone could go back, check, and see if I missed any, or whatever, or doubled up, or something like that. So, those first five steps of entering the kingdom are listed under Roman numeral 2, That should be something you have memorized, and if you haven't been through all five of those steps, that should be your focus as a young Christian. That, you know, what do I need to do to learn to move, get step two done, or step three done, or step four done? If you haven't uh, been through all those four steps, I'm actually going to do another mini-series after we finish baptizing the Holy Spirit, which should be just a few more weeks. And I think, let's see, does that make... And we already did some messages in number eight, so we'll be done with this series, actually, maybe by the first of the year. So maybe around the first of the year we'll start, uh, uh, well, actually, we'll still be in the eight essential elements, but we'll start the fourth thing, deliverance from demons and healing. So I'm going to do a little mini-series on that. Okay, so... uh, Around August 20th, we started talking about the five most common hindrances to having that initial experience called being baptized in the Holy Spirit. But these are the common hindrances to individuals and actually bodies of Christians uh, staying filled with the Holy Spirit. If you have sort of a move of the Holy Spirit in your midst, like we did, say, from January to May of earlier this year, um, and and it seems like there's... God is trying to do the same again. Uh, Normally, uh, he will allow quite a few people to discover that one of these five is holding them back and to grant them confession of sins, repentance, uh, moving forward, and so forth. And you should sense a new release of the power of the Holy Spirit in your life. Uh, That should be a fairly common experience on the Christian walk as you understand that there's something that's gotten in between you and your fellowship with God. And so these are not just for getting initially baptized in the Spirit, but they're for staying filled with the Spirit. And so we spent a few weeks on the, the, uh, the five hindrances are listed under Roman numeral four there at the bottom of the first page. And we spent several weeks on the concept of biblically incomplete conversions versus biblically complete conversions, which is a real issue of our day. And then we spent three weeks on what I call the Charlie Brown syndrome. 
So today we're going to start looking at the third area called occult involvement. So flip over to the back side of your page, and um, we will start with just some pertinent scriptures. Um, and uh, I kind of reuse outlines and then just change everything. So that little note there, also see separate handout of scriptures. I didn't do that this time. And actually, the last time we did that, we just had John Gray read them. But I, uh, I made a separate handout, but we decided not to mass print it and give it to everybody. But we would have copies of that if you wanted them. All right, so let's talk about 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 20 through 22. This is, of course, the Apostle Paul... If you know a little bit about the Corinthian church, Paul uh, only went to the most important cities in the Roman Empire. He did not go to minor cities, but he had an apostolic team that was probably around 30-some people, based on, if you read all the names associated with Paul that he's given direction to and so forth in the New Testament and add them up, and he would often send teammates to less important cities. So, for instance, in Paul's letter to the Colossians, he mentions the gospel that they heard through our brother Epaphras, who was a member of Paul's team, like Timothy and Titus, a leader, an apostolic team member, and a leader in the church, and and good at proclaiming the kingdom of God and, and leading people to Christ and getting people through the first five steps and planning a church. And Epaphras was originally from the city of Colossae, And so when Paul was near Colossae in Corinth, he sent Epaphras to Colossae. Because Paul would not be, uh, you know, he only went to the cities that were major, major cities. Corinth is actually one of the top ten most important cities in the Roman Empire, maybe the top five. For one, it's the capital of a province. So it would be like a capital of a state in our day and age in terms of its importance. But secondly, it's a huge economic cast, ca- um, capital, is what I'm trying to say. It's a, it's a very wealthy city with a lot of trade and a lot of people coming and going because it was actually on a little isthmus that stuck down. And on either side of the city, there was a great harbor. And they would actually pull ships into both sides of the city. And they actually had uh, rollers uh, made out of logs that they had honed down. That, were, that would go all the way from one harbor to another, and they would actually haul the ships over uh, rather than sail around. And so uh, it was very much like what the Panama Canal's function is today. And so Corinth was a city known for its sailors, and as a result, Corinth was a, a city known for its immorality. You know, it had a lot of brothels, bars, uh, gambling places, and... Uh, it was kind of equivalent to our, like, San Francisco's and New Orleans and Miami and that sort of thing today. Las Vegas, but, uh, you know, some of the cities you associate with more degenerate uh, character or whatever. So uh, Paul's letter to the Corinthians takes that into account. Although he had been there 18 months before the persecution got uh, uh, difficult enough that he had to flee, Yet, he, uh, unlike many other places he's been, there was no one mature enough to raise up as an elder. And so it's one of the few letters that he addresses to a church that he's not addressing to the elders and deacons of the church because there aren't any yet in Corinth because there's not anybody qualifying. 
You know, in our day and age, because the American situation is so similar to Corinth, it's taken us years to, uh, we'll be ordaining three new elders this coming spring, and, and uh, you know, we've ordained three elders in our history, and it took us uh, seven years to raise up the, uh, the first three. So, uh, and another seven to raise up the next three, and then hopefully that pace will start to pick up, because we, uh, by the grace of God, need to uh, start planting some churches. So anyway, um, Paul tells the Corinthians early in the letter that the things he's speaking to them are what he would call milk and not meat. That is, they're the beginning doctrines of Christ, they're not the deeper things. And the difference between milk and meat is milk helps form bones and bones provide framework or foundations. So the analogy might be uh, the, the uh, structure like framing in a house. That could be a, a similar analogy. Uh, he's not talking about the drywall and the paint job and picking out colors for your carpet and your couch. He's, uh, you can't do that when you haven't put up the two-by-four walls and laid a foundation and so forth. So he's talking about foundational things throughout the whole letter. It's important to understand. So that's enough context to read these verses. You always got to read the verses in the context of the book it's in. So if you don't know a little bit about the book it's in, that's why I would recommend, I would not recommend the first few times you read the whole Bible that you use all the notes of a study Bible because you'll bog down too much. Just get to know the text. But I would read, uh, get some kind of study Bible and read the introductions to the books because uh, that would give you the kind of thing I just gave you. So, uh, so in verse 20, he says, No, I imply, that I took this from the ESV, by the way, that what pagans sacrificed, they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to participate with demons. And the Greek word there is koinonas, which many of us know that word. is one of the most well-known Christian words. Uh, if, if people know five Greek words in the New Testament, that would be one of them they usually know. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You can't do both. You know, you can't be uh, in the swimming pool and dry at the same time. There are some things that are impossible to do. And he's saying, if you are drinking the cup of demons, then you can't drink the cup of the Lord. You cannot partake, and that's uh, metico, metico, of the table of the Lord and the table of demons, Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Uh, are we stronger than he? Now, those of us who are married or those of us who have courted probably have experienced jealousy once or twice or even parents and so forth. But we have never experienced what God's jealousy is, is something very holy, very pure. But God is very jealous for his people that we would be purely betrothed to him and not divided in our loyalties, in our heart, in our affections, or in, uh, in our priorities. God wants all of you. And he won't set, settle for being one of your priorities like is so common today. God has to be your all in all. And he won't uh, share that glory with another. And he especially won't share it with the occult. 
So the first note I want to say is that the word, the word koinonas uh, means, uh, well, first of all, it's translated shares in the New American Standard Bible to have fellowship with in the New King James Version or be partners with in the New English Translation. And almost, I checked about 25 or so other Greek, uh, uh, English translations, and it, all of them use those same words. They, you know, the, those four or so represent almost all the English translations. So, uh, the definition, fellowship, partner, associate, comrade. I like that one. Companion or share. It means to participate together in it. It means to be a team, a family. It means to, you know, in a family, there's, there's individuals, yet in, in the great mystery, families really are one. Marriages are one, ideally. And, uh, and in fact, Christ, in the, one of the boldest prayers of all time, in John 17, what's called the high priestly prayer, uh, be, right before he was arrested and so forth, he prays that we would become one in the same way the same quality, the same manner as the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are one. That's pretty good goal, don't you think? <laughs> pretty lofty. And I would not have any hope that that would be possible except Jesus prayed it. And he had a great track record for answer to prayer. That's why his disciples said, teach us to pray. Because they saw that his prayers were answered. All right, so the word partake is medico. And it's partake in the NASB, ESV, Revised Standard, New King James, and Young's Literal. Those are perhaps the five best English translations. Uh, it means to share, participate, take part, use, partake. And by implication, it, me it implies belonging to. And I love that thought. You know, most people today don't like the idea of belonging to one another. But if you're married, you belong to one another. If you're in a church, you belong to one another. If you work for a business, especially if you're a partner in the business, you belong to one another. So, Ephesians 5, 5 through 18, we're not going to read the whole... Uh, I, I listed the whole thing, so if you go back through the notes, I'd encourage you to read the whole context, but I didn't have enough room on the page for the whole context. For this you know with certainty, that no immoral or impure person or covetous man who is an idolater has an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Now, if anybody even read that verse in American Christianity today, he'd probably be stoned to death. He's saying, you know this with certainty. And then he says, no one. You know what? One of the, we all struggle with a thing where we're coming out of darkness and we're coming into light. That's what it means to come to Christ. He is the source of all truth reality, and light. And we are coming out of a lifetime of deception and wrong thinking and wrong habits and wrong attitudes and wrong motivations and deceived ideas. That's the progress we make in Christianity into reality and truth. And one of the uh, obstacles we have is that we all think that we're not included in the no ones and the any ones and the every ones. But you are. <laughs> That's because you are someone. <laughs> and so, no immoral person. Wow, that's pretty heavy. Or impure person or covetous man. 
You ever struggle with covetousness? Like, I wish I could dunk like so-and-so or whatever, you know, I don't know. I wish, maybe it's more covetousness about uh, material goods or talents or wish I had a bigger church and that kind of thing. Uh, who knows? Uh, no immoral person who is an idolater. An idolater is just someone who has something or someone competing with Christ in their affections. That's an idolater. You don't have to uh, carve a wooden idol. You have one with, a, with four wheels out in your garage for some people. So uh, sometimes your relationships, lots of things can, we can... We are idol-producing factories in our, in our fallen humanity. We really are. And the, the Christian life is to constantly be asking God to deliver us from our idols. All right, let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, God's really happy with everyone. <laughs> and he'll forgive anything because he's so loving and merciful. Oh, I'm sorry. That's the modern translation. I updated the translation to fit the times. You know, I've actually heard Christians who are arguing today, it's a very common thing that there is no such thing as the wrath of God. The problem is, the whole point of Paul's letter, he starts with in Romans 1, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven, and that's what he's telling you the, for, through 16 chapters, is how to flee from the wrath of God into the mercy of Christ. For the wrath of God... Not a problem. You know, when's the last time you heard a sermon that even mentioned the wrath of God? Not popular. Doesn't sell books. Won't get you your best life now. But it really will, actually. Comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not be sumatakos. Notice that it's the same word as up above, partakers, with the, the, the prefix sum or sim you know, which symmetrical with. Don't be partakers with those people. For you were formerly darkness, but now you're light in the Lord. Walk as children of the light. For the fruit of light consists in some goodness, a little bit more than you had before. Oh, no, it's not. I'm sorry. Misread that. And all goodness and righteousness... And un, uh, where I lost my track. In truth, trying to learn what is pleasing to the Lord, do not participate. Look at that. It's soon koinoneo. So it's the same word as above with soon added in, or sin. I would it would be pronounced uh, like we, we. If you synchronize your watch, chronos is time, sin is with. Let's get our watches on the same time. Of course, we wouldn't have to do that anymore because we all have watches controlled by. Someone out there. <laughs> and then and our phones are all synced and could be some kind of plot. No, I'm not just kidding. Not a concern. <laughs> all right, so uh, don't be a teammate with, don't be a member of the unfruitful deeds of the darkness, but ex instead even expose them. When is the not... When is the last time you had enough guts to talk to somebody about what they were involved in was harmful for them? 
If you don't do that regularly, I would say you're not a very loving person. Build a platform to do it with so you can be received, but you need to do that. Instead, and he's, Paul's telling you, it's your job to expose the unfruitful deeds of darkness. Hey, don't you know this is hurting you? <laughs> she knows. Okay. <laughs> For it's disgraceful even to speak of the things which are done by them in secret. And the Greek word kryphi was the, you know, we encrypted. Uh, cryptic is the same root word. But in all things, uh, but all things become visible when they are exposed to the light. For everything that becomes visible is light. So if you take, even like if you take social change, if you've ever studied William Wilberforce or watched the movie Amazing Grace, the way they were able to overcome slavery was to, to bring out of the darkness the, the, what was happening on slave ships and what was happening to slaves. And they made people have to look at it. They brought it to light. And guess what? Because they did that so effectively, they passed the law in 1805 that outlawed future slave trade two years before it was passed in the United States. And then, 30 years later, they outlawed slavery throughout the whole British Empire 28 years before it was done in the United States of America. And they didn't need a civil war to do it. Because we had Christians saying that's not a good strategy to, to show all that terrible wickedness. And, and uh, you know, like you get today, like people say you, you shouldn't show what really happens in abortion. Abortion can't continue if people know what really happens in abortion. Because everything becomes visible when it's exposed to the light. Everything. The occult has to, has to flourish by people being ignorant of what they're doing. Sometimes when I hear the uh, people even in our own church tell me what movies they see and so forth, I'm like, are you kidding me? Like, don't you know any better than that? Didn't you ever read, like, your Bible? I'm probably not going to be popular today. But I, because this thing of the occult has become a, it's become a, um, a revival in our culture, and almost every Christian is caught up in it. Almost our, every Christian participates in demonic things all the time, and it's hurting you. It's the source of lots of your medical problems, emotional problems. Uh, relational problems, and all kind of problems. It really is. So, uh, sec moving on to 2 Corinthians 4, 2. But we have renounced the things hidden. Kryptos. Nothing to do with kryptonite, I don't think. Because of shame which is kind of the opposite of paying $12 to see it in the theater. Not walking in craftiness or adulterating or prostituting the word of God. Wow. Think about what goes on in our churches today. But by the manifestation of truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. 
Again, cryptos means hidden, concealed, secret, private. So it means the occult. Now in Rome, at the time the early church was spreading, at the time these churches were, were, uh, were being born, and the time the apostles were going from city to city, they would first proclaim the kingdom of God and the lordship of Jesus Christ, his death, burial, and resurrection, and his ascension, the outpouring of the Spirit. They'd proclaim all that in the synagogues, among God's former people who he, Jesus said, I'm going to take the kingdom away from you and give it to a nation producing the fruit. And he had already prophesied the coming destruction of Jerusalem, which happened in 67 to 70 AD, which Matthew 24 and 25 are about and Mark 13 and so forth. And he, uh, which some Christians today have ignorantly put as part of the end times or something. Uh, and so, uh, there's a shift in kingdoms going on, and the apostles are proclaiming this from city to city. And first they proclaim it uh, to God's people who have one last chance, because God always takes a remnant out of his old people. They always leave the old people and build something new. They don't stay in the old situation. So they left the synagogues and, and began to form churches. That's important because people are always saying, well, we're about the remnant and so forth. That's why we stay where we've always been. No, that's actually not very biblical. Um, what what uh, God always does, then, then they would go to the marketplace and proclaim the kingdom of God to the Gentiles, the pagans. And actually the word pagan uh, originally was just a, a Roman Latin word for someone who lived out in the country. Because the apostles' uh, strategy was to plant these churches in the city and let them spread from there. And that strategy was so effective that by the 4th century, the cities were largely Christianized and the people who still practiced the idolatry and the pagan uh, cult practices lived mostly in the countryside. And so they began to call like a person who hadn't, hadn't been enlightened to the, the kingdom of God and the gospel that was still dwelling in darkness a pagan meaning a farmer or a rural person. Today, we actually have sort of the opposite situation in America. In general, there's more godliness out in the countrysides, although it tends to be a lukewarm kind of godliness. So, um, in Rome, there was this thing called the mystery cults. And mystery cults practiced a thing called hidden arts. So when you join the mystery cult, it's very much like uh, the Freemasons today. Freemasons is a false religion. It's not just a cult. It's a competing religion to Christianity. And it has all kinds of secret rites and rituals. And they're disgusting. They're like, may my throat be slit if I betray this state, you know, this and stuff. And may I bleed all over you. You know, I mean, uh, it's a very evil thing. Shriners and all that. And if you've had that in your, in your family, in your heritage, you'll need to, to, to uh, get some deliverance from evil spirits. So we're going to talk in a minute about what the occult is. Now, what's important to understand is John 18, I have a couple of old verses down there under note 3, they're about halfway down the second page, just past the word cryptos. This is a major point of Christianity. Jesus was on trial. The arrest was done in secret, in, in the dark of night. 
showing you it wasn't a godly thing in the first place. Secondly, they had no witnesses that could say anything substantial. And they broke every law of Moses in the name of trying him according to the law of Moses in the trial. Get a book called Who Moved the Stone by Frank Morrison. And uh, you'll understand the trial of Jesus was very wicked by very wicked men. And they couldn't get him to say anything, so they, the high priest said, I assure you by the living God, tell us if you're the Christ. Now that was a thing according to the law, which basically said, okay, you're going to tell the truth now. You're, you're going to swear to it that you're telling the truth. However, when the person told the truth, like our Fifth Amendment, because it's based on this principle, no one could say something that convicted or condemned themselves. That would be against God's law. So when Jesus says, I am, he's quoting Exodus 3.14, I am that I am. He's saying, I'm God. I'm the guy that was in the burning bush talking to Moses. Before Abraham was, I am, John 8.48. 52. So Jesus is saying that, and he says, And you shall see the Son of Man, which is the Messianic title from, from Daniel chapter 7. I think it's around verse 22. You can look it up 19 to 22, somewhere in there. And you'll see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of glory, which is, again, a quote from Daniel. He's making it very clear. I am on trial for claiming I'm God. It's amazing there are cults like the Way International who uh, uh, don't believe in the deity of Christ because that was what he was on trial for. And that's what he was convicted of illegally. It was against the law for him to be convicted on his own testimony. Yet he said, when he said that, the high priest tore his robe and said, you've heard the blasphemy. We haven't been able to get any witnesses to say anything worth accusing him of. So, we're going to take his own words and against the law, condemn him on that. And because the Romans didn't allow the Jews uh, to practice capital punishment, they had to take him to Pilate. Now, all that's a build-up to say, then he's before Pilate, right? And Pilate's saying, what are they accusing you of? This, this stuff is kind of confusing. It's, Pilate wasn't that thrilled with what the Jews were trying to do, to be honest. And he eventually just, he didn't convict Jesus because he felt Jesus had done anything wrong. He just wanted to do the Sanhedrin a favor. It was a political thing. But Jesus says, uh, why do you have to ask me what I'm saying and what I did? Ask all the people. Everything I did was done in the open, in the marketplace. We've done nothing in secret. That's what John 18 says. And that is like the most important principle of Christianity. We are not hiding from the world what we believe, what we teach, and how we live. We are inviting all men to come look at it. We got nothing to hide, unlike all the scandals of our day and age, where it seems like everyone has something to hide. Now, Approximately 33, 
Well, 31 to 34, no one knows actually if Jesus died in 30 AD or 33 AD. Those are the only two years that all the things we do know add up. But in 64 AD, Paul is before Felix and Agrippa. And he says, you know what we teach. These things aren't done in a corner. The whole world has heard our teaching. We don't have any private mystery cults. There's nothing about our teaching that's hidden. Now, just so you don't get confused, in the, uh, by the second century, in the, in the first century, you see a lot of Jews, uh, God-fearing uh, or Hellenized Jews, that is Greeks, other, other nations that had converted to Judaism, and God-fearers come to Christ. And they tend to get water baptized immediately and baptized in the Holy Spirit and join the church all as a package deal in like one day. By the second and third century, there's a process to join the church because the church is starting to convert more and more pagans. And they have to renounce their idols and their occult worship and all the demonic Pokemon things they're involved in and, and astrology charts and, and witchcraft and everything else. There's a lot of that in the, in the world today. And there was in, in the time of Rome. And so if someone wanted to be a Christian, he would have to come before the elders of the church and say, I intend to be a Christian. And they would lead him in prayers of, of renouncing all false idols, including emperor worship, making them an enemy of the state. Wouldn't that be amazing if you had to renounce the... You know, the, the U.S. government, if, to become a Christian, there's countries where you have to do that. I don't think we've come to that point just yet, although I don't like the Democrats or the Republicans. Which one's worse? It's hard to say. But it's, there's, you know, certainly not much of a Christian voice anywhere in our country, nor would even the Christians understand what a Christian perspective is. So... Then they would go through a catechism process, and so they would be admitted to the corporate worship and teaching, but at the end of the service, when they took communion, they would actually have to leave. But it wasn't that they didn't know what they were doing. But they weren't permitted to the communion until they'd finished their catechism process, and they weren't even permitted to get baptized until they had. And so when, once they finished their catechism, they were then, they were then uh, water baptized and, uh, and invited to the communion table Be, because the elders and people who knew them could certify this person's not involved in any false religions anymore. They are truly a worshiper of the triune God through his son, Jesus Christ. And there's no competition going on in this family here. That's why the whole family was admitted to baptism. Now, let's keep going. Deuteronomy 18, 9 through 15. I'm still in the introduction. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, when you enter the land when the Lord your, which the Lord your God gives you, you shall not learn to imitate the detestable things of those nations. This is a pretty good verse for our day and age. There shall not be found among you anyone. Remember what we said about anyone's? Who makes 
his son or daughter passed through the fire. That was uh, part of what was called Moloch worship. And anyone who knows what they're talking about understands that's the spirit behind the abortion industry. Child sacrifice. Or one who uses divination. You know, when someone came to Christ, there were lots of people who came to Christ who formerly killed their kids in Moloch worship. They were forgiven, restored, but they would renounce, they would make this commitment that they would never do such a thing again. One who uses divination, which is uh, consulting spirits to find, you know, anything from water to truth or whatever. Lottery ticket numbers, people do. One who practices witchcraft or one who interprets omens or a sorcerer. The Greek word for sorcerer in the Septuagint and in the New Testament is pharmakeia, and it, me- it means the use of mind-altering drugs and mood-altering drugs. Forever does these things, uh, med- or a medium, a spiritist, that I get all those, cast a spell, uh, calls upon the dead, you know, like the, uh, there was a show called Crossing Over some years ago. I don't know if there's still shows like that, but where they would actually like talk to dead people and there's people who actually consult their dead loved ones and pray, oh, my dad's still very much with me. Don't do go there. That's why I don't pray to saints. You know what? When we were, there's a great cloud of witnesses, and there in the First uh, Thessalonians four makes sure makes it very clear that when someone dies, if they're in Christ, they go immediately into the presence of God, their spirit and soul, awaiting the final resurrection when their body will be made like Christ's body, and they'll be reunited with their body. But when we're worshiping, we're in the same presence as our lost loved ones, but we don't have the authorization from God to talk to them or communicate with them. That's why it's called a familiar spirit. The reason these occultists get messages from your relatives that seem to know some facts about your family history is because they're demons that have been in your family for a long time. And they do know your family history, and they can uh, imitate your Uncle Charlie. But they're liars. And, it, and witchcraft diviners and so forth. And then he talks about the Lord will raise up a prophet like me. The alternative is Jesus Christ. That's what Moses is talking about. He's talking about God's going to raise up a prophet, Jesus, and you're not going to listen to all these other kinds of voices. You're only going to listen to the voice of Jesus. Now, I'm going to share a testimony in January of 1985, a girl named Falake, who ended up marrying Dave Hannon, became Falake Hannon, uh, came to Christ in our UD ministry when we were just, had just moved to Dayton and we had less than 10 people. And uh, we prayed for her at the Tuesday night meeting to receive Christ. And on the Friday night fellowship, Catherine was actually only coming down from Friday nights to Monday morning. She was teaching up in Northwest Ohio at Finley University during the week and living in our old house in Bowling Green. So she would join me for Friday night worship and then and, uh, and be there through the weekend, and we'd go out witnessing on Saturdays and Sundays nights and so forth. So Catherine was upstairs leading Falake's sister Bukola to the Lord, 
And we were downstairs sharing with Falake about being baptized in the Holy Spirit. And when we began to pray for her, she began to hyperventilate. And her face began to twitch. And her fingers began to gnarl. And, and, uh, and I was like, Lord, that usually happens in deliverance. What's going on here? I've never had experienced that when praying for someone to get baptized in the Spirit. But that's why you want to store up a lot of scripture because God can't really speak to you unless you have a lot of scripture in your heart. And the Lord showed me all the times when Jesus filled with the Holy Spirit had demons react to the presence of the Holy Spirit because they hate the presence of the Holy Spirit. And he said, some people have so many occult involvements that they actually have to get delivered from demons to get baptized in the Spirit. Now we normally in this church practice getting someone baptized in the Holy Spirit, then as they grow in the anointing and power of the Holy Spirit and they study the stuff on deliverance, then we take them through deliverance. But there are times when it works the opposite way around, like we had to do with Stephen Leopold, and there's a few others in this church that, that have experienced that. And that's getting more common because the occult is growing in our culture. There's lots of people who won't get baptized in the Holy Spirit unless they get delivered from demons first. And I'm getting to the point where I kind of know that in advance anyway. Because it you know, happens a lot. But we started casting some demons out of her. And she had, she had some grandfathers and so forth that were witch doctors and, in Nigeria and so forth. And uh, at one point she slithered across our basement floor like a snake. And she went all the way across the floor in a couple seconds... And her body moved in ways that no human body could move. It would be impossible. And there were 14 brand new baby Christians in the room who had never seen anything like this. And I never had to worry about trying to convince people of the supernatural again. <laughs> and we cast a bunch of demons out of her and she wonderfully got baptized in the spirit. And within two or three years she had married Dave and they had... Uh, they actually became in charge of our book ministry because they were so given to biblical studies and theology that they were amazingly, they passed me and I was like, I don't know if it's a good book. You know more than I know if it's a good book. But if you think it's a good book, put it in the bookstore. So, uh, you know, uh, the occult, it used to be that we associated the occult, the occult like that level with other countries where Christianity had not made many inroads. That is reversing quite quickly. You know, to think that there could be commercials for calling some line to get your, your reading of, what do they call those people? Soothsayers or psychics and that kind of crud. That's super demonic stuff. Now, you need to understand the kingdom, spiritual realm, is legal. So if you read your horoscope, you just gave legal permission for the demons behind it to enter you. If you look at pornography, you gave legal permission to the, to the spirits behind it to look at, to enter you. If you do an Ouija board or uh, levitation or consult a witch or, or go watch a bunch of movies that, that have anime and other kinds of demonic stuff in it, you're asking to be demonically uh, in, in motivated. Because a demon, a person with a demon is a person who has motivations that are in competition with God. And attitudes that are in competition with God. Think you're having trouble with some attitudes and motivations of your kids? Well, 
look into the possibility that it could be demonic. Now, horoscopes, Ouija boards, Disney has been on the cutting edge for over 65, 75 years of introducing the occult to this country. My parents didn't allow me to watch Disney when I was growing up. Now, I'm not saying all of it is. I let my kids watch Star Wars, but we had deep talks when they were five, six, seven years old about Buddhism and Christian allegory and what was, what was godly and what was not godly. And they, were, they, they had a super good understanding of it before they were 10 years old. We expect too little of kids these days, by the way. Ephesians 2.2 2 talks about the prince of the power of the air. The same root word that media is, is medium. That's why they call them channels. They do. It's actually the same root. So I'm not saying don't watch television. You know, but when I watch sports, I sit there with the remote in my hand because half the commercials they show I wouldn't allow in my home. And I almost always have to switch to another game during the commercial. Drives Logan nuts because then we miss the first minute of the, of the game because you're trying to guess when it's safe to go back to your game. Now, last thing I want to tell you is what's, what I am now calling metacognitive constitution. I had a concept that I called solical fiber for years, and I always, every time I used the word, I said, I got to. So this morning, I finally spent a couple hours looking at words and decided on metacognitive constitution. But it's simply this. Every person is, is uh, built in a certain way, and you listen a certain way. Some people listen emotionally. Some people listen emotionally and defensively. Some people lead with their wounded spirit. A lot of those kind of people end up eventually being very used of God for compassionate ministries once God heals them, makes them whole. Some people are easier to hurt than others because their spirit and their, all their vulnerabilities are right out on the surface all the time. Other people listen intellectually. They tend to be called engineers and mathematicians and scientists. And sometimes people of that persuasion have a more, much more difficult time of, of getting into hearing spiritually. But you are fearfully and wonderfully made. You have three parts, a spirit, a soul, and a body. And your spirit has your temple of God. Oh, shoot, I am out of time. Your, um, I'm going to finish anyway. It has the ability to, to have God dwell in you. It has your knowledge that there is a God, and it has your conscience. And you fellowship with God in the spirit. He is a spirit, and that's the only place to fellowship God. Your mind hears those spiritual messages and your emotions, and you make decisions about them. Your, your soul has your mind, your, your intellect, your rational cognitive processes, your emotions. And that's something quite different than your spirit. Your emotions are not your spirit. Although, when you're filled with the Holy Spirit, it will sp he will spill into your emotions with joy and peace and other kinds. Of and most people start experiencing the Holy Spirit that way first from the emotional overflow of it. Because most people don't have any knowledge of their spirit, except some vague longing that I'm bored or something like that. Because you can't get to know your spirit till Christ lives in your spirit. And when you get baptized in the Holy Spirit, you begin a process of knowing what's going on in your spirit. 
That's why Paul, Jesus perceived in his spirit what the Pharisees were thinking. Paul says in Romans 1.9, the God who I serve in, your, in my spirit. After you're baptized in the spirit, you begin a journey towards learning to live out of your, the power of your spirit and how to listen spiritually and so forth and how to discern spiritually. And that's a cooperation between the scripture you've stored up in your mind and your heart and, the, and your emotional affections and and so forth, but you want to be so filled with God's Holy Spirit that God's Holy Spirit dominates your attitudes, motivations, and you live out of the fruits of the Spirit. Now, to try to bring this to an ending, different people are wired different ways. So there are people who have read their horoscope but haven't gotten a lot of demonic ramifications from it. And there are people who the first time they read it get a lot of demonic ramifications. There are people the first time they get exposed to Dungeons and Dragons or Pokemon or anime have all kinds of demons and they can think of nothing else but that after that. That happens with pornography all the time. I used to disciple a guy who ended up marrying my cousin who I'm still close friends with. And he saw pornography for the first time when he was in college, and he said, why would anyone want to think about women as like parts and demean women like that? This is disgusting. And he saw it for about 30 seconds, and he said, never looked at it again. I know guys who've never looked at pornography. We are told in our culture that it's super normal. It's not. It's abnormal. Very. And these kind of things are spiritual, And one of the goals of the Christian life is to get all the competing spirits out of your life. Now, I'm way past the time, but I I do want to say this. We do not counsel people to stop taking psychotropic drugs because uh, most people aren't ready for that. But in the end, that should be your goal if you need those kinds of medications because they also open up the door to spiritual problems at the same time. And they're not good for you. At most, they mask symptoms, but they don't heal the source of the things. And so I hope I don't offend anybody. We have quite a few testimonies in this church. Talk to Sydney, for instance, of people who were, you know, they ruined his life with psychotropic drugs growing up and After he came to Christ, he was able to get completely out of that, and he's been out of that for probably 12 years now, right? So, um, you know, I I would be very cautious as a parent if your kid's a little bit obnoxious or so forth, and they tell you, oh, you need to medicate him with this and medicate him with that. That's why people on those drugs remind me of potheads so much, to be honest. And I'm not, being a hater... I want to help you pass those. Now, it may be a couple-year journey or whatever. Sydney, it was a year or two, I think. But, but you want to go there. You want to get to the roots of problems and get spiritually, emotionally, mentally, physically healthy. And Christ's salvation is not just for heaven. It's for everything that was damaged by the fall of man in your, in your mind, in your emotions, in your way of life. Amen.